Have you ever been disappointed with how God has let things happen? Nobody's honest at this church. This is great. This is your first time here. This is a dishonest church. I just want you to know that right up front. No, I think we all, maybe we don't want to verbalize it. We don't want to admit to it. But I think all of us could say, you know, I don't like how God arranges things sometimes. I mean, I'm sure you've been in the same space that I've been at times where I've thought, you know, God, if I had the pen in my hand and I was writing the story, I would not write it that way. You know, the Bible expresses God to have great moral character. And there are times when we look at God's character and then we see what happens and we wonder, how do these things match? God, how, how can you let that happen if this is who you are? Like the Bible describes God as being merciful and describes God as being just. Justice means that God punishes the wicked and God rewards the righteous. Mercy means that God withholds deserved punishment. That at times we don't get what we deserve because God is merciful. And the Bible talks about how these ideas of mercy and justice, they're not contrary to each other, but they do collide with each other. And that tension in that collision is resolved in the idea of sacrifice. See, in a sacrifice, God can justly punish sin, but be merciful because the one he punishes is actually like a substitute that has stood in for the person who's committed the sin. This is the message of the cross, the central message of the scripture, is that God punished Jesus Christ, who willingly took on our guilt. So his justice was expressed in punishing Christ on the cross. And we receive mercy because that punishment fell on someone else. Now, knowing that, knowing that God's justice and God's mercy can work together, and seeing that in the central picture of the scriptures, the cross of Jesus Christ, doesn't mean we always know how God's mercy and how God's justice will play out. I'll give you an example. When somebody wrongs me, when they act unjustly towards me, when I'm a victim of injustice, you know what I want? Smoke them. Yes, right? God, roll up, pop the trunk, let's go, right? You're like, what does that mean? There are guns in the trunk, okay? That's what it, listen to a rap song, you'll totally understand, okay? Right, but that you want God to roll up on them. Like you want extensive and thorough justice. God, they hurt me, do your thing. And I have been disappointed with how God has delayed his justice. Now, flip that the other way. When I act unjustly, when I do something that's wrong, when I hurt somebody, what do I want God to do? Not roll up on me. Don't pop the trunk. Open the passenger seat. Let's go for a ride. Speak kindly to me. Right? I want God's mercy. That's what I want. That's what I want. Now, we know that God's character is consistent. He's faithful to who he says he is. But that doesn't mean we always know what's going to happen. We don't always know how he's going to be faithful and how he's going to display mercy. I wish that I could tell you how every event in your life will happen if you obey God. I can't tell you that. 
I can tell you how the story ends. It ends really great. Reunited with our creator who loves us, cares for us, who has forgiven us of our sins and restored a relationship with him. I know how the story ends. I just don't know how it gets there. But I know in the journey to the end that God is faithful, even if he's not predictable. In fact, that's the big idea for this morning. If you write down one thing, I want you to write this down. God is faithful, but not predictable. We know that his character, as described in the scripture, is one who is just, one who is merciful, compassionate, and slow to anger. But we don't always know how that will play out in the events in our lives. And as we're studying the topic of prayer in the month of February, this is a great principle for us to know. When we pray, our peace is found knowing who God is and not what will happen. Because God often acts in ways that we didn't expect. But there are always ways that are in line with his character. Let me show you how God made this clear to one of the patriarchs in the Bible named Abraham. Let me show you. This is Genesis chapter 18. We're going to start with verse 16. And this is the story of Abraham's prayer for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you may be familiar with this city this is, or, this, or this story. This is a story of God dealing out justice on a very wicked city. And Abraham is going to pray for this city. And in this story, there's, it's, it's, it's a little odd. There's some elements that are a little odd that we kind of have to get around. The way God is described, the language is a little odd. And the way Abraham interacts with God is also a little odd. His prayer almost sounds like a negotiation. And we're going to see that. It almost sounds like he's haggling with God. It, it's borderline on he's annoying God. He's pestering God. But we're going to get past those kind of uh, peculiarities those oddities, we're going to get past those. And I think what we're going to see is this, that God is faithful, but he's not predictable. And we can still trust him to be faithful, even if we're not certain with how his faithfulness will be displayed in our lives. So let me show you this. This is Genesis chapter 18. I want to start with verse 16. I'll just catch us up to where we are in the story. Abraham has been hospitable to three guests. These guests are heavenly visitors. And the way the interaction happens is that when Abraham talks to these visitors, he talks to them as if he's talking to God. So either they're a messenger for God, they're angels, or they're like a physical manifestation of God's presence. I don't really know. What I know is that when Abraham talks to them, and when they talk to him, it is a divine conversation that is happening. Okay, so let's kind of jump in. He's played host to them. And now we're going to get kind of an unveiling of the plan that's happening of why they came to visit. Verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them and sent them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham? what I'm about to do. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That term right there, justice, is going to come up several times in our passage. So just take note of that. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promise. Now, 
Here's what's kind of interesting about this. If you look in verse 16, this is, we get kind of the setup of the scenario. And then verse 17, we get the Lord talking to himself. Now, this is where we start to get some odd language about God. And we're going to get some more odd language. So let me give you a really good scrabble word, okay? If you use this word, you're going to get a million points. This kind of language, when we're describing God kind of in human terms, it's called an anthropomorphism. And if you're like, Paul, how do you spell it? I don't know. I'm dyslexic. Anthro, Google it. Anthropomorphism. What does it mean? When you speak in a way that, that is anthropomorphic, it means that you are taking maybe God or an animal or an object and you're describing it in human terms. Okay? That, that's the kind of the idea. Why do we do that? It's so we can understand what's going on. We understand ourselves, so when we use language to describe other things that aren't us, it's a way for us to kind of comprehend what's happening. This is what's going on here. Okay, God is not a God who needs to learn. He's omniscient. God is not a God who grows, or God is not a God who needs to um, add information into his thinking. That's not who God is. The discussion here is anthropomorphic. The idea is the mystery of God doesn't fit super neatly in our minds. But God still reveals himself in a way that's understandable. So we could get close to understanding who he is. But he is the God of the universe who created space and time and is therefore not constrained by space and time. So our human language and our human's minds have a hard time understanding who he is. So this language, we shouldn't treat it as an exact expression of the nature of God. Rather, it's a tool to help our human minds grapple with who God is. So what God is doing here is God is saying, I don't want to keep this from Abraham. I'm about to execute justice on these cities. And I don't want to hide this plan from my guy. Because I have a plan for this guy. Look in verse 19. He tells us the plan. Whoops, that was fun. I will get that later. Nobody get it, okay? And then was a little girl actually drew that uh, for me in last service, and I told her I'd keep it in my Bible. So I'm a liar. Uh, I tried, okay? I tried, if you're watching this for some reason. I tried. Look at verse 19. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So I have a plan, I want to bless the world through him, and I want his children to know the way of the Lord. I want him to do justice and righteousness so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. Do you see the plan? God made a promise to bless the world through Abraham. But Abraham is expected to obey. I want him to teach justice and righteousness to his children. Why? so that my promise will come true. You kind of see the plan there? Here's what the reader is left thinking. The question that they're left with is, can God trust Abraham? Can God trust Abraham to act right? Can God trust Abraham to be just? Can God trust Abraham to communicate justice and righteousness to his children? That's where we're left right here. God wants to bring Abraham into this plan of him executing justice because he wants to see, Abraham, are you going to be concerned for the nations? 
Are you going to be concerned about justice? Now, in our next kind of uh, uh, section, we're going to see another question of trust. Not does, can God trust Abraham, but can Abraham trust God? The first question was, will Abraham be just? The second question is, will God be just? So let's continue to go. So God has this kind of internal dialogue, says, I don't want to hide this. I want to test Abraham to see if he has a concern for justice. So then he goes to Abraham and says, let me tell you the scenario that's happening. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. Now again, anthropomorphic language. God does not need to learn. He already knows what's happening. He knows what's going on. So why is this language being used to describe God? Here's why. Because I think God wants to show Abraham, I'm not hasty in my judgment. I'm thorough. My justice has integrity. I take everything into account. I'm not impulsive in my judgment. I don't uh, uh, just irrationally come up with judgment and punishment because of a small amount of information. I take into account everything. I think that's what he's expressing here. I am just. Now this next section is where it gets a little odd, even more, because we're going to get this back and forth between Abraham and God. And in this next section, that question I told you is going to come up, that question of trust. Can God be trusted? And so now we're left really with two questions. Can Abraham be trusted? Will he be just? And now we're going to get to the section where can Abraham trust God to be just? Now let me give you the ending of the story. The ending of the story is, yes, Abraham can be trusted. And yes, God can be trusted. Yes, Abraham is concerned for justice and God will show that he is concerned for justice. But you can't predict how that justice will play out. He'll be faithful to his justice. But we don't know how it'll play out. Let me show you that in this very odd prayer, probably one of the strangest prayers in all of the Bible. Look at verse 22. So he hears about what's going to happen, this outcry in the city. That idea of outcry probably means that the people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah who are being oppressed, they're the ones crying out to God. God, you got to do something. The evil is just so bad in this city. So verse 22, it says this. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom, so the other visitors. But Abraham stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are, there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? There's a term again. Remember, God was testing Abraham. Does he care about justice? Does he care for the nations? Well, clearly he's passed that test. He cares about justice. Now the question kind of turns, can Abraham trust God to be just? 
Now, we got to be careful about how we read this language. Because, yes, it does sound that this is like a little irreverent to speak to God like this. But Abraham is not expressing unbelief. He does believe in the justice of God. We see that. This verse right here, verse 25. Notice how he repeats twice. Far be it from you to do such a thing. Then at the last sentence, or the second to last sentence, is far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That phrase, far be it from you, says this. It is inconceivable for me to think that you will act unjustly. I can't even imagine that, God. Abraham is assuming God's character. He is believing that he is just. That's why he's in this problem. His trust of God's character is creating this dilemma. Wait, wait, God. So if we have this city that is wicked, what if there are some righteous in the city? Surely you're not going to treat the righteous as if they're wicked. That, that's not just. You see how this is playing out? The only way Abraham sees this as kind of resolving, this conflict resolving, is God, you have to be merciful to the whole city. Because that's the only way to be just to the righteous. That's his thinking. If you're going to be faithful to your character, I don't see any other way out. And then he gives us a series of these. Okay, so let's start. And let me tell you, if you're a parent and you have small children who tend to annoy you. Okay, if you have children, I don't even need to say the annoy you part. I can just assume that part. I'm assuming your kids are kids right? And sometimes your kids pester you. Am I right? And if they don't, I will trade you kids. You can have mine and I'll have yours, (laughs) right? But there's those times where those, you know, wonderful, wonderful little delightful children are like, dad, can we have ice cream for dinner? What? No. Oh, okay. Hey, dad, can we have a cookie for dinner? No. Cookies? No, no. Dad, can we have candy for dinner? Dude, stop talking to me, right? You're going to kind of get that little feel, honestly, from this, Because Abraham has kind of kind of pushed the envelope with God of, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And his prayer is going to seem more like pestering. So let's continue to go. We were in verse 25. Let's go to verse 26. And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous in heaven, I will spare the place, I will spare the place for their sake. And Abraham answered him, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. So so here we kind of get a little bit of the posture of Abraham here. Like he's not just a pestering, prideful little child, right? That's not what he is. Actually, every time he asks a question, except for once in verse 29, we see this in verse 27, uh, verse 30, verse 31, and verse 32. Every time he asks a question, he always expresses some sort of humility with that, except for once. And this is probably the the pinnacle example. Look at what he says. He's like, I'm but dust. I am ashes. God, I know that you are God and I am not. But I still would like to ask this question. That's That's his posture. So he's still humble and he still assumes the justice of God. That's why he's in this dilemma. He persists on. We're in verse 27. Now verse 28, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to them and said, suppose 40 are found. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. 
Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, Stop talking. Right? Like, I don't know if you're annoyed. I'm annoyed just reading it. But he continues to go on. For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. This is my favorite part. Verse 33. And the Lord went away. This is parenting strategy from God. If they keep asking you questions, walk away. Deuces. This is like, I'm out. Dad, can we have candy? I can't hear you. I'm running away. <laughs> Just like the Lord did. Now, okay, I say that in humor a little bit, but here's why I think God moved away. I think what's happening here is we don't need to read this as if there's this like heavenly threshold for collateral damage. Like God is okay if this many people go out but shouldn't have when he's punishing the wicked. I don't think we should read it like that. In fact, I see the, the like kind of descending order, the shrinking of the values. Let's even think what the next question would be, right? We were at 50, then 45, then 40, 30, 20, 10. And if we follow that pattern, he should be at zero. Well, that question really wouldn't make sense. God, if there are zero righteous in the city, will you spare it? Well, no, because that means everybody's wicked. So that's why I think Abraham doesn't ask again. I also don't think it's really about numbers. It's more being assured of the, the, the justice of God and the mercy of God. The reason I don't think it's about numbers is because Abraham actually has family in these cities. Lot, his nephew, his wife, and their two daughters. Four. Why didn't Abraham say, hey, if there's four in the city? Like maybe he didn't like his relatives. He's like, God, just five. If there's four, just take them out. It's fine. I'm good with that. No, I don't think that. I think what he's getting is, okay, God, every number I throw at you, you're saying, yes, yes, I will not, I will not treat the righteous like the wicked. And the reason I think God walks away at the end or steps away at the end is because he's done enough to assure Abraham he will act justly. Now, remember, the big idea was God is faithful, but not predictable. The way this story plays out in Genesis chapter 19 shows us that God, yes, is faithful. That he does care about justice. But he's not predictable. Abraham thought the only way to resolve this problem is if God is merciful to the whole city for the sake of the righteous that dwell in that city. That's his only way of thinking that this is how it's going to play out. And the way it plays out is not like that. In Genesis chapter 19, what happens is there is only one righteous person found. And his name is Lot. And that one righteous person is removed from the city. Those messengers that came to Sodom will warn Lot and Lot will flee and he'll 
leave, but he is the only righteous in the city. And what is God showing? Yes, I will be just. I will execute punishment on the wicked, but I will not treat the righteous like the wicked. So I'm going to remove the righteous from the city and judge the city. That's not what Abraham predicted. That's not what he thought was going to happen, but that is faithful to God's character. Look at how the writer of Genesis, how Moses describes what happened and how this relation with Abraham and Lot kind of played out. Notice this in Genesis chapter 19, verse 29. It says, so it was that when, Abraham, or sorry, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. What did he remember? The prayer, this negotiation. God, can I trust you? Are you going to be just? If there's 45, if there's 40, 30, 20, 10, God, will you be just? And each time God says, yes, 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 I'll be just. But not in the way you think. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. One of the earliest followers of Jesus Christ, a man by the name of Peter, wrote in 2 Peter chapter 2, I think it's verse 7, he speaks of Lot as being righteous. Lot was the only righteous in the city, and God removed him from that city and then punished that city. God is faithful, but not predictable in how he executes his justice. Now, Genesis 19 shows us another principle. God is faithful, but not predictable in how he displays mercy. Because Lot, before he leaves that city, the one righteous man, before he leaves the city, before he's removed and protected, he prays or makes a request to the divine messengers that have come to his house. And look at his prayer. It's very similar to Abraham's prayer, but gets a totally different result. Abraham would pray, God, spare the city, be merciful for the sake of the righteous. And then look at Lot's prayer. A little different, but similar. Genesis chapter 19, verse 17. Listen to this prayer. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. This is the messenger from God. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills because God is going to judge the cities of the valley. Escape to the hills. Get out of here. Lest you be swept away. And Lot said to him, oh no, my Lord. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I can't escape to the hills. My back hurts. I'm slow. You know, I can't do this. Okay, I'm adding that in. But still, he's saying, I don't think I can make it. That looks far. Does that sound like a very uh, virtuous prayer? Like Abraham is over here like, God, I know your character, you are just and you are true. You cannot treat the wicked and the righteous the same. Surely your justice must maintain that you will be good to those who are righteous, so have mercy on the city. Oh, beautiful prayer. Lot is over here like, ah, my back hurts. I really don't want to run. Doesn't seem as virtuous, does it? Look at his request. I don't know if I can make it there. We're in verse 20. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's, it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said, Behold, I grant you this favor also. 
I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape quickly there, for I can do nothing until you arrive. What? So Abraham, beautiful prayer. Spare the city. God says, nope. I'm going to do things different. I'm going to remove the righteous, punish the city. Lot over here looks lazy. And he says, will you spare the city? Okay, I'll spare the city that was destined for destruction. What? Doesn't that seem odd to you? Doesn't that seem strange? Seems slightly unfair? But it's faithful to God's character. He's displaying mercy. Not as Abraham expected, but he's still displaying mercy. He is faithful, but he is not predictable. And hear me, I would love, 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 love to tell you how your life was going to turn out. I would love to tell you all the events that you can expect to happen if you obey God. I I would love to tell all, all you parents here, If you do this and this and this and this with your children, here's what you can expect. I would love to do that. I'd love to do that. If you just do this, 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 you can expect them to be this way, this way, this way, and this way. I would love, maybe you're caring for your aging parents. Oh, just have the conversation this way, this way, this way, and this way, and you can expect with 100% certainty that they'll accept the idea of going into long-term care. I I would love to be able to to sit with you as you're dealing with this kind of moral dilemma at your work. When your superior has asked you to do something that you know is not ethical, that you know it's not right, that you know Jesus wouldn't smile over. And I would love to tell you, well, do the thing of good character. Do what's right. Be faithful. Be righteous. Be just. Behave this way. And you can predict that you'll actually get a promotion. You'll be that person's boss. You'll be the man and stick it to the old man. I would love to be able to tell you those things, but I can't. And this book doesn't. It tells us how the story ends. And it's a great ending, man. It's the best ending. The best ending just did that in our family devotions in the morning. Finally got to the end of our journey. We've been on a long journey. Got to the end of the Bible. Walked through Revelation. Man, what a beautiful new heavens and new earth when God writes every wrong. And he says, no more tears, suffering, pain, sorrow, or agony. It's all gone. That's an awesome ending but I don't know how it gets there. And I don't know about you, but when you look at the future, do you get anxious? Do you get worried? Do all the what ifs kind of weigh you down? See, faith is not the absence of certainty. It's the confidence in God's character. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know who he is. 
I don't know the events that are going to transpire, but I know the character of my God. I know he is faithful, and I know he is merciful. I just don't know how he's going to make that felt. When you pray, trust in the character of God. It's not going to happen the way you want it all the time. Well, let me be honest, most of the time. And you may not like the way that it's currently happening, but you can trust him to be faithful. And friend, wrestle with him. Wrestle with him. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, hear me, wrestle with him. It's okay. Abraham wrestled with God and God did not strike him down. Wrestle with God. Ask him the questions. If you don't like the way he's writing your story, tell him. Tell him. He could take it. Plus, he already knows your thoughts. You might as well express them. You might as well get him out. My wife has this beautiful phrase that she says. She says, faith wrestles. Unbelief leaves the ring. I know you're like, can we have her talk? Yeah, I appreciate that. Yes, yeah. It's a wonderful phrase to think about. Yes, faith wrestles. Ask the questions. It gives the hesitation. It, it, it unleashes the frustration. Wrestle with him. But just don't leave the ring. There is no hope outside the ring. In the ring, you can wrestle with him and you can trust that his character is what will give you comfort. Not in the circumstances that play out, but in his character. As a follower of Jesus Christ, when you're filled with fear because you don't know the future, rest in his character. Rest in who God is. He is faithful. Even though he is unpredictable at times. And if you're not yet following Jesus, I want to ask you, if you're just exploring Christianity, maybe coming to church for the first time, you're like, hey, I'm going to give this religion thing a shot. Maybe you're like, hey, that was important to my grandmother. You know what? Maybe it means something. I'm so excited that you're here. And I want to ask you to do an evaluation of your sense of comfort and peace in your life, your sense of rest in your life. Like when you look at the future, are you comfortable just with your control? Okay, I got my hand on the steering wheel. I'm good. I can face the future. Or does the fear really start to build in you of like, I don't know what's out there and it's scary. I would ask you to evaluate your sense of peace. See, we were created to find safety and security in God. And we lost that. We lost that when we fell into sin. We lost that. But thank God, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sin. To reunite us in relationship with him. And that gives us a peace that doesn't take away every pain. That's not till the end. But it's a peace that can get us through all the pains of our life. A peace that can persevere no matter how bad the storm gets. I want you to have that. God wants you to have that. And I think deep down, you want to have that kind of peace. Peace that can persevere through the greatest of life's pains. That's what God offers you. And my encouragement to you is to follow Jesus Christ today. To find forgiveness and to know the peace that transcends your understanding. A peace that gets you through even when life is unpredictable.
Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We know that you're faithful. We're confident of your character. We know that you're just and that you are merciful. I know you, you love me and you care for me. But Lord, I'll be honest, I worry. I do get anxious. I ask all the what ifs. I play out all the scenarios. And then my mind is just filled with all of these anxious thoughts. And my body is just gripped with fear. Man, I get there so quickly. <laughs> Lord, help me to lean on you. Help me to trust in you. Even if I can't answer the questions of how is everything going to happen, I can always answer the question of who you are. I know who you are because you've shown me who you are. You've revealed to me who you are. You are faithful. You are true. You are merciful. You are just. You forgive wrongdoing. You are gracious to us. You're loving and you're kind. Father, help me to find comfort in your character and not in my circumstances. And Father, for those in this room, maybe they would describe themselves as just, I'm curious about Christianity, but I'm just not yet committed to, to Jesus. If that's you in this room, I pray that God is just speaking to you in a very real and personal way. I believe God has something for you. Every time you come here, every time you open up this book, God has something for you. He wants to speak to you in a personal and a passionate way. And maybe as you've heard what we've shared, you've thought to yourself, no, I'm ready. I'm ready to cross the line. I'm ready to make that step and to follow Jesus for the first time. If that's you, then I want to help you. I want to help you with some words. They're not magical words. They're only meaningful if they come from your heart. But in the silence of your own heart, between you and God, you can pray a, a, a prayer like this. If you want to step towards Jesus today, you can say this. Again, if it means something in your heart, then it means something to him. You can say, God, I admit. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've broken your rules. I've broken your laws. God, I admit that I've messed up my life. But now I see that Jesus Christ died and rose again to forgive me of my sin. And today I believe in him. I believe that he died and rose again. I believe that he was a sacrifice for my sin. So today, I confess Jesus as the Lord of my life. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.